Warning. Descriptions in this podcast can be graphic in nature. So listen at your own risk. Welcome to the Battle After the Badge podcast with your host, Steve Cartmel. Steve is a retired police officer who's worked 32 years with the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office in Southern Ohio. Steve wants to share his stories and information about his personal experiences and how they affected him and how he learned to deal with these issues. Now, let's hear about his battle after the badge. Hello and welcome back to my podcast, The Battle After the Badge. First, let me start off by saying thank you to everyone who took time out of their busy schedules just to listen to my episode. It was pretty overwhelming knowing that this many people listened, so from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you to everyone. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about the first big call that I handled as a road patrol officer. It was back in 1996, and I was just promoted uh, to the road patrol from the jail. About a month later, it's July 3rd, 1996, I was patrolling and I had Deputy Ray Jones with me. Ray was a special deputy or an auxiliary officer with our department, but his main job was a paramedic for the county EMS. So every month, the special deputies had to put in so much time in order to keep their status, and that's what Ray was doing. He was putting his time in, riding with me, to get his time in. So we're patrolling around the Chesapeake, Ohio area, and it was a nice day out. Dispatch contacts us and advises that we have a fire at the Ohio River Fireworks building in Scotttown. So we run lights and siren all the way out, and we are talking about it being the day before the 4th of July and how busy this place usually is. So we get about two miles away from the building, and we top the hill, and we can see the smoke rolling above the trees. As we turned off the state house, Route 217 onto the driveway of the fireworks building, I noticed that there's another officer coming from the other direction. This officer is Deputy John Tortoff. And he turns in right behind me and we proceed down the driveway. As we're traveling up the driveway, we see a woman coming running at us and she's screaming, and all she has on is a pair of pants and her bra. Her shirt is missing. And she's got both of her arms to all extended all the way out to the sides. And you could see that the skin around her tricep area was dripping off of her. Ray starts yelling, slow down, slow down. And before I could even get my cruiser stopped, Ray steps outside of the vehicle without falling, without stumbling. He steps out as my cruiser's still moving. He grabs this woman and takes her to the... EMS that had just arrived prior to us getting there, and he starts treating her for her injuries. So, myself and John Tortoff, we proceed on up the driveway, and we get to the fence. Uh, There's an entrance there um, right before the building, and there's a fenced-in area. So, we get there, and we run up to the building to try to get in to see if we can save anyone or see if anybody's even inside. We get up to the building, and there's just no way to get inside this building. 
it is fully engulfed um, with fire, and there's bottle rockets, there's all kinds of stuff shooting out of the building, there's firecrackers going off, um, and it's, like I said, fully engulfed in fire. So we turn around and start to walk off knowing that we can't get in, and there's a gentleman that's approaching us, and he's very distraught. This gentleman is yelling that his son is inside, and he's going in to save him. So we kind of keep him from going inside, and he's screaming at us, please let him go, that he needs to get inside to save his son. And we tell him that it's too late, that there's no way to get inside, as we've already tried. He insists on letting us go, or letting him go, so he can go inside this building, because he's wanting to save his son. We physically had to restrain him from going inside, and uh, he just turns around and, and he breaks down as he's walking off. I had much sympathy for him as I have kids, and but can't imagine what this guy was going through at that time. He walks off, and the firefighters start battling the blaze. So now we start our investigation, and during our investigation, we find out that the owner of the fireworks building, David Pruitt, is still on scene at the location. So I find him and I talk to him, and he states that there was around 40 people inside the building when someone had let off some fireworks in the back of the building. He states more fireworks went off, and it was chaos as people uh, started rushing out. He said it looked like a huge stampede with everybody trying to get out the building. So after talking to him, shortly after I found out that the guy who is suspected of starting the fire is still at the scene also. So I locate him sitting on the ground, leaning against the fence to the entrance by the building. His name is Todd Hall, and Todd is 24 years of age at the time. So I put Todd in my cruiser for his safety and have another deputy take him to the prosecutor's office per the sheriff. We are told that there are three other boys ranging in ages from 16 to 19 that were with him and told him or encouraged him to light the fireworks as a prank or a joke. I did not locate them while I was there, but was advised that they were found and taken to the prosecutor's office later. Myself and Deputy Tordip then searched six other tractor-trailer uh, trailers that were on the property to make sure that there was no other fireworks that could possibly cause another fire. These trailers were empty. As firefighters continued to fight the fire, I met up with the uh, Sheriff Roy Smith, our detectives, and the Ohio Fire Marshal investigator to discuss our plan of action. I was advised I had to sketch out a diagram of the building with the measurements and note where the doors were located, windows, and any exits if they were blocked from the outside or inside. So the firefighters, it took them about two hours to uh, put the fire out and it was still hot, too hot to go inside. So I started my measurements while waiting for the inside to cool down. 
I documented everything. And once it was okay to go inside, investigators and I made my way in. We immediately discovered several bodies just left and approximately five feet away from the door. There appeared to be several there. And the way they were, they were kind of on top of each other. And it looked like one person may have fell and the other one just kind of fell off or fell on top of them. So while looking around, I noticed that the tables ran the length of the building. So the building went from left to right. It was pretty large block, cinder block building. The tables that were inside ran the same way. The tables ran left to right instead of front to back. And this was important because we believe that if they would have been front to back, then it would have been a straight shot to the door and possibly people could have made it out. But the tables were left to right, and if anybody would have been on the back side of a table, they would have had to come all the way around the side of the table and then back to the front of the table in order to try to get out. And this is where we think that um, with all the smoke and the fire, somebody had fell, maybe got lost, fell, and the others kind of tripped over top of them and landed. I documented that the front door and the back door did not have anything blocking it and made note of that. It was also found out that there was a sprinkler system inside the building, but investigators found out later that the sprinkler system was not even hooked up with water. It was now time to retrieve the bodies inside. The firefighters that were there formed the line and took sheets and held them up, kind of forming a wall so that nobody could see us pull the bodies out. The bodies were severely burned and unable to be identified. One person still had their infant child in their arms. The sights and the smell of burnt flesh is horrible and like nothing that I had ever experienced before. The funeral home started to arrive and transported the deceased. A total of eight people was found inside the building and had died that day. The ninth person died at the hospital shortly after, so there was a total of nine people that died as a result of the fireworks fire. It was a long and emotional day. I was once told that the day that we forget someone or someone is forgotten is the day that we stop saying their names and remembering them. So I want to say the names of the nine people who passed on this tragic day. And they are as follows. Jason Wallace, age 9. Matt Sansom, age 14. Una Tolliver, age 8. Floyd Tolliver, age 34. Shelby Cron, age 3. Misty Cron, age 21. Ryan Aldridge, age 24. Candy Lee, age 31, and Kathleen Wilkes, age 71. There's a memorial in Proctorville with these names located on this memorial. And at the bottom of it, it says, Taken from our lives, 
but not from our hearts. So, days later, the prosecutor decides not to file any charges on the three guys that were with Todd. He said after lengthy interviewing and investigation from his office that the boys had nothing to do with Todd setting the fire and Todd acted alone. Todd was charged with four counts of arson and nine counts of involuntary manslaughter. However, Todd was found to have a mental disability. His attorney filed for a mental evaluation. It was found out that at the age of 15, Todd Hall had a skateboarding accident and struck his head, causing a traumatic brain injury, and the brain swelled. Todd had to have part of his brain removed, and he suffered significant impairment to his mental and emotional functioning. Todd would later be found incompetent to stay in trial and was ordered to be placed in the Appalachian Behavioral Health Care Center in Athens, Ohio, to undergo treatment, hopefully to get better to the point of being able to act to be mentally competent to stay in trial. So every two years, Todd would have to be brought back to court and go before the court for a mental evaluation. And each year, he was still found incompetent to stay in trial and would be sent back to that behavioral facility to try to get better. Todd remained in the mental institution until he died, March the 8th of 2015. The fireworks store would never reopen, and the owner, David Pruitt, faced legal and civil issues stemming from the safety violations not in place in the building. David Pruitt would die in January of 2001. So, that kind of talks about that day. And I went on with my career and never was offered any counseling. I learned to deal with my emotions and, and thought I had done a decent job until after I retired and was watching an episode of Chicago Fire. And it showed a victim and a firefighter burn pretty bad. And it instantly took me back to that day of the fireworks fire. I had several dreams about that day and lady, later I finally sought therapy. You know, one of the things that, that bothered me was I was never able to say that I was sorry uh, to that dad for keeping him from trying to get inside. And uh, I know people may think that, you know, that's what I was supposed to do. And I knew that's what I was supposed to do. But still, a part of me was sorry seeing this guy cry because he couldn't get in to save his child. and and that really bothered me. So I was never able to apologize. But one day at work, we were talking about the tragic day, and I wanted to see if there were any updates with families who had lost loved ones and found that the 25th of Remembrance was um, just last year. And the Herald-Dispatch did a story on Jason Wallace's family and the story talked about Jason had two sisters, Beth and Amy, who were at the time of the fire were 12 and 14 uh, years old. And the story talked about Beth dealing with not being able to view her brother because it was a closed casket and it bothered her that there was no closure. Well, 
Beth become the funeral director so she could help those facing the same issues she had. And she is now the owner of Wallace Funeral Home in South Point, Ohio. It hit me that I had been to several funerals at this funeral home and never put two and two together and realized Jason's sister was right there and probably greeted me as I walked in before. So I wanted to stop by and talk to her and possibly her dad, as it was her dad, Johnny Wallace, who tried to get in to save his son. And we wouldn't allow him to do so. So I talked to my therapist about the idea, and she thought it would be a good thing to do. So on my way home from my therapy session, I stopped at the funeral home and went inside. I introduced myself and asked if Beth or Johnny was there. I was advised Johnny didn't work there and that Beth wasn't there at the time. But they said Amy was there and asked if I wanted to talk to her, and I said I would love to. Amy came out, and I told her who I was and that I was the first officer on the scene at the fire that her brother died in. I also told her about holding her father back from going inside the burning building. I broke down telling her this and wanted to tell her dad that I was sorry. It had bothered me for 26 years that I never told him I was sorry for keeping him from trying to save his son. Like I said, as a father, we will do whatever we can to save our children, and I stopped him. I couldn't let him die in that fire. But Amy told me her father wasn't one of many words talking about the fire, but she thanked me for saving her dad that day and not letting him die. Amy said there are a lot of memories they have because I wouldn't let him go inside. She hugged me, and a heavy weight was lifted from my shoulders. So Amy took my name and number in case her dad would ever want to talk to me. I found out later that both Beth and Amy were married, and I'm glad their dad was able to walk them down the aisle. And I hope one day that he will forgive me. So. This is a step towards my PTSD and my healing. It has at times been tough to talk about, as you can tell. And telling you this story has definitely helped. I hope you've enjoyed listening. And if anyone, especially my brothers and sisters in law enforcement, ever struggle, even if you think you don't need to talk to anyone, please go. And you can even reach out to me. So, with that being said, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and next episode will be out soon, and it's a must-listen-to episode about my veteran friend I met on the job and the favor that he asked me to do for him. So for now, and until the next episode, thank you for listening to The Battle After the Badge. I hope you have a great week and a great day.